You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and this week we have an exciting interview. Uh, It's with Andy Haldane, who, as many of you will know, uh, is currently the chief economist at the Bank of England, uh, although it was announced just this week that he will in fact be leaving that role uh, in September to join the RSA, the Royal Society for Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, as their new chief executive, which sounds like a very exciting move uh, to me. Now, I was lucky enough to sit down uh, for a chat with Andy a few weeks ago, um, and we had a great wide-ranging discussion. Uh, We talked all about uh, kind of his views on why civil society matters so much and why it had been such a big theme in his work and thoughts over the years. Um, But given that, why he thought it was perhaps undervalued in discussions about policy. Um, We talked a lot about the importance of infrastructure, um, particularly digital infrastructure and the way in which pandemic has highlighted that. Uh, And we talked also about the impact of the fourth industrial revolution on civil society and the opportunities and challenges that will present. Um, I then also sat down uh, for a separate chat with CAF's new chief executive, uh, Neil Heslop, um, for a bit of additional insight and analysis. Um, It was great to have a chance to sit down with Neil. Um, A lot of the things that I managed to talk to Andy Haldane about were things that I've spoken separately to Neil about as well, uh, and are very much in line with some interesting things going on at CAF as well. So it was great to have a chance to talk to him. Um, So without further ado, let's go first into the conversation with Andy. Uh, I'll be back. Uh, just for a little break in the middle uh, to introduce Neil uh, and then again at the end for some of the usual housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. Well, I am here with Andy Haldane. Hi, Andy. Hi, Rodri. Morning. Uh, and Andy, it's great to, to have a chance to chat to you on the podcast. So I'm sure listeners will all be already be aware of you and your work, but you are the chief economist at the Bank of England. Lots of things I want to talk to you about today. I guess a good starting point would just be to note that you know you're you're a very prominent person, and a lot of what you said gets picked up very widely. And you've used that platform over many many years to talk about the importance of civil society issues. And I think everyone in the sector, you know, is very grateful for that. Why has civil society been been such a constant theme in your thinking and, and why is it so important to you? Yeah, thanks, Rodri, and, and thank you for having me on. Really appreciate the chance to chat about these issues of such importance right at the moment. Um, and actually have been of such importance right through history. And I think that's part of my answer to your question, really, which is, you know, when it comes to looking at what has caused economies to, to grow, societies to flourish. The story often told is the story of the market, the story of capitalism. Sometimes for others, it's the story of the state, the role of government in promoting uh, wealth and well-being. But actually, you know, my reading of the history books, the kind of deep roots of mass flourishing of economies and societies, tells me that civil society has been every bit as important 
to those success stories as the market and as the state. Indeed, it's the partnership between the three, between the private sector, the public sector and the voluntary sector. Therein lies the secret source of success when it comes to economies growing or societies uh, flourishing. So that's my sort of, if you like, kind of quasi-academic reason for my interest and focus on civil society as one of the, the crucial pillars of the three pillars in improvement. I mean, more narrowly, I think consistent with that, I set up this charity pro bono economics, you know, what, 12 years ago now, whose aim in large part really was to speak to some of those questions, you know, particularly to seek a partnership, in this case, between uh, my profession, economics profession, uh, and the charitable sector, but more broadly, to ensure that civil society in its many and various forms was properly recognised for the contribution it was making to that growth, to that mass flourishing. And in essence, that's what the work of pro bono economics has, has been about, to make what is often invisible, that invisible contribution, a bit more visible to everyone. So those are the two reasons, one very broad and one rather narrower, why, you know, for me, civil society is absolutely central to everything we've done, always has been, uh, and never more so than just right now. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a lot I, I want to, to pick up on in there. I guess j- just as a follow up question, you, you talk about um, the importance of civil society as that third pillar alongside or between the, you know, the market and, and the state. What for you, you know, are some of the features that are kind of unique to to civil society that, that adds value? What's its core role in that overall picture? Yeah, it's interesting. And in some ways, if you took those three pillars, you took the state governments. You took the market, you know, companies, and you took civil society, which is rather more, as you know, all your listeners know, a rather more amorphous form. But the most existential of those three is plainly the third. Governments are, a, in a way, a sort of legal, a legal form. Companies have a legal form. Civil society has been with us forever. It has a human form. It's arguably been there since... You're the very dawn of man from our hunter-gatherer communities. It's a coming together of individuals to serve a broader social purpose. That would be my definition of what civil society is. And in that sense, it's been with us as long as we have had humans as social animals. That isn't true of the market, and that isn't true of the state in relative terms. They are newcomers uh, to uh, to the stage. And yeah, I think that's interesting when you when it comes to reflecting on the respective roles the three pillars are seen to play now, you know, when you know the most existential form of all, civil society, is often rather squeezed out of the conversation, which instead is a conversation about, you know, the right role of the market or the right role of the state, when in actual fact, you know, in a way both are there serving the people they are there serving civil society and i'd love it if we could you know change the conversation about the form of the economy the form of society that we want that put that third pillar in a position of greater prominence that it's been you know for at least the last hundred years i'd say 
Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to talk uh, more in a bit about that that question of the the narratives we have at a sort of policy or political level about civil society and how we might shift those. Um, I wanted to ask first, you talked there about, you know, the breadth of civil society reflecting the fact that in many ways it's sort of more fundamental than, than government or, or the market. And one thing that you've talked about a lot in your work and, and seems to be part of the thesis behind founding pro bono economics is about the, the importance of measurement and the fact that currently a lot of the, the measures we have available to us don't seem to capture the full value of charities or civil society very well. It, are they partly a victim of, of that breadth and that, you know, we, we, don't, we haven't developed the measures that would allow us to capture the full breadth of value that, that they bring? I think it's partly a question of that. I mean, you're right, Rodri, that it's a pretty expansive set of activities that's typically kind of grouped under the heading civil society, some of them with a formal form, uh, a legal form, a charitable form, uh, and some of them uh, rather more informal, you know, if you like, social movements uh, as much as uh, organisations. And that, towards ever thus, towards ever thus. And that, I would say, is a great virtue. You know, some social change is best brought about with a, within a formal banner and a formal umbrella. And some is best brought about in a more agile, informal social movement fashion. I think that's a great virtue of civil society, that it has that kind of malleability. It has that combination of the formal um, and the informal. But has that got in the way a little bit, or maybe even a lot, in us understanding and measuring the third pillar, the third sector, as well as we might? Yes, I think it probably has contributed to that. It's true that even for the formal part, even for the legally identifiable part of the charitable sector, we haven't done an especially good job of measuring uh, its contribution. You know, the, the larger part of volunteering, you know, that 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 army of you know 20 million people across the UK, 1 billion people globally, that largely goes uh, unmeasured by our typical success measures, such as uh, things like gross domestic product or or GDP. The larger part of that is missed entirely. And even those parts that are captured uh, a bit, either in the national accounts or in the satellite accounts, are only really trying to proxy the monetary equivalent of those activities as though they were being done in the private sector, which kind of misses the point. Because the whole point of those activities is that they are serving a broader and deeper social good. And almost all of that social value, the social impact multiplier of those volunteering activities, if you like, that's entirely missing, even within uh, the extended satellite accounts. So I think it wouldn't be an overstatement to say that the lion's share of the good, the societal good, done by civil society goes unmeasured and you know measurement isn't everything but i think without that rodri there's a real risk that what is not measured is not recognized and is not managed and i think that has been the case with civil society now over many decades I, yeah, I would certainly agree. I think it, you know anyone who comes into the sector and starts to ask what they seem like very reasonable questions about the the size and shape of it, quite often quite surprised by how you know poorly we understand that. Um, you know, even within the formal parts, as you say. Um, I, I wonder that it was really interesting to hear you say there that you know measurement isn't everything. Because I, I, one question I wanted to ask was whether you thought 
actually we could largely solve this problem if we developed better and more appropriate methods of measurement or whether there are actually things that are of value about civil society that, that in some sense can't be measured and we need to also accept that because I guess there's a, a worry sometimes in civil society that the more we kind of demand formal measures of things the more the activity skews towards those measures and that things that don't fit within that then get overlooked or ignored. I think that's entirely fair. I think, you know, measurements, data, numbers can only, uh, should only be, you know, a means to an end. They aren't an end in themselves. And they're plainly uh, always, whatever activity you're looking at, a very imperfect metric uh, of what it is uh, you are seeking to capture. Nonetheless, I think the starting point here is one that really needs improving. I think we're a long way short of the point of, you know, measurement of the sector um, having hit sort of diminishing returns. At the moment, the, as I say, the larger part isn't really captured or, or understood uh, at all. I think that is a significant constraint on, well, among other things, the amount of money the sector is able to attract given the value uh, it is uh, able uh, able to create. I do think alongside much better numbers, we do need some colour, we need some texture, we need some stories, we need some, some narratives about what it is the sector is achieving that can't otherwise be achieved. I'd say of civil society, as I say of the economy, you, yes, you can understand it to some significant degree with numbers, and the better the numbers, the better you understand it. But that can't be the whole story of the economy. It's about uh, the stories as well as the stats. Uh, and that is even, that's true to an even greater extent, I think, when it comes to thinking about the contribution that civil society makes. So it is much better numbers, but gluing them to the stories therein, I think, lies the uh, lies real success. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. I think it is the the combination of those two, as you say, and that that brings me sort of back to the question of um, the the narratives at a kind of political and, and policy level. You said there that having the numbers would help, but you need those stories as as well. Um, what what do you think those narratives might need to look like to appeal to politicians or to kind of be seen by them as something that is central to their thinking rather than just peripheral or happening over in a in a sort of small niche in the corner? And, and do you think there are any practical barriers at the moment that are getting in the way of civil society or charities having a seat at the table to be able to kind of to, to get those narratives across? I think there are probably a few things there, Rodri, that would, um, I think, help in having those narratives, which are there, of course. Uh, I mean, as you would know, much better than me, but I get it myself and I travel around uh, the UK or used to um, be back on the road, hopefully later this year. In my case, sort of harvesting stories, uh, often from uh, charities and community and, and faith groups about you know, what is going on locally. Those stories are there, but they are not always cutting through as widely as they might. What might be done to, to, to remedy uh, that? I don't think there's any kind of one thing let me mention a few things i think would go in the right sort of direction um one would be educational one would be within schools where i would love it 
if a greater understanding of the role of civil society, the role of charities, the role of volunteering, the role of civic contribution and civic service was placed even more centre stage uh, in the curriculum and indeed volunteering activities, you know, more deeply embedded in the educational programme of, of, of all children at all ages so that that habit was inculcated at the earliest possible stage. And I'd love it if at the point, you know, uh, children or young people are leaving school, that there is then a training come career trajectory for many more of them that embraces that ongoing degree of civic service. Having having planted the seed, having created the habit uh, in the classroom, there's then the chance for the seed to germinate throughout people's career. And that could be through their volunteering activities. It could be through them spending a spell career-wise in the charitable sector, you know, maybe maybe toggling between those three pillars. Right now, what I see, you know, is quite siloed careers. You are in the private sector or you are in the public sector or you are in the charitable sector. If I'm right about this partnership that's needed, we should be building some career pathways that enable people to crisscross between those silos. I've experienced both of public, private and uh, third sectors as part of a wide and diversified career experience. So there's that, there's the, there's the educational, there is the vocational. I suppose a third dimension would be the political and is the ways of embedding the importance of civil society um, slightly more in the political conversation uh, about our country than there's a case right now. I think there's certainly some scope for for doing that, you know, perhaps when thinking about, you know, should we have someone within cabinet whose sole responsibility was to speak to and of civil society uh, in terms of its contribution you know, to the other arms of government and to, in terms of its contribution to the other parts of the economy. I mean, I haven't got concrete plans on that, but I thought that would help in surfacing the stories and surfacing that contribution with a, with, a, with a wider cohort of politicians. But the grassroots work, I think, needs to happen elsewhere, outside of Westminster, outside of parliaments, outside of the political process. And that's within our schools and within our companies. I, yeah, it, sounds, it all sounds fascinating. I think you're right, having that point of contact within within government at, at the appropriate level uh, to, to speak, you know, and to, and to kind of shape that narrative across government would be, you know, hugely uh, important, I think, and, and a sort of powerful thing for the sector. I suppose within within the civil society itself and maybe the, the charity sector, um, when it comes to, to getting across some of that narrative and some of the points about its wider value, it strikes me that individual charities obviously should think about it, but there's, there's also a need for the infrastructure within civil society that allows some of that to be pulled together at a, at a macro level and, and communicated to government. And, and you've spoken many times before about some of the, the current challenges in terms of, of civil society infrastructure. And I think the pandemic has made everyone within civil society keenly aware of some of the, the current weaknesses of the infrastructure. 
Um, what for you are the are the kind of main gaps at the moment that we need to be addressing when it comes to infrastructure within civil society? Yeah, thanks, Rodri. And, and this isn't going to be in any way, shape or form a, a sort of complete list. Uh, you and others will have uh, much better ideas than me. I mean, one which I don't know with its infrastructure, but I sometimes feel you're looking from the, the outside in that there isn't quite for the sector that collective voice that is as engaging as it might be, if I can put it that way, with the with the other two pillars. I think sometimes the sector can look a bit inward rather than outward. And as I say, you know, my, my preferred way of thinking about this is that success comes from a partnership, from a buddying up between public, private and and third. And that does require you know, uh, an openness to that partnership. So I think that isn't so much infrastructure as uh, orientation uh, of the sector. On the infrastructure itself, I do think, and I spoke about this elsewhere, there is considerable scope to uh, make some more better use of various digital infrastructures to improve, widen and deepen the contribution, already brilliant contribution of civil society a couple of examples of that you know i think this will scope to do more to use your platform technologies to match an even greater number of volunteers into an even greater number of fantastic projects i think there's a scope to use those platform solutions to mobilize more of the resources within the technology sector which could be brought to bear to help the charitable sector improve their digital skills and their digital infrastructures. I think we still do too poor a job, uh, a poorer job than we than we should and uh, could and should, to fully record and therefore recognise the full extent of the voluntary come charitable activity that occurs across the UK. And if those things um, could be captured in a digital form that would give us a much better window of the breadth and depth and perspective value of those contributions that would help for the individual you know i think people's volunteering activities absolutely should be recognized in their cv and 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 therefore rewarded in as as training and as as a as a contribution in the workplace in the same way as would work in the private sector so a digital passport if you like of that type i think would is also well within our compass from an infrastructural perspective there's other stuff that could be done but those are a few rodri that i think would help help strengthen help strengthen the sector and improve others understanding of the sector and of course much of that infrastructure exists in other sectors so it's not really shooting for the moon it's using existing technologies to do a somewhat better job i think it's really interesting that you you bring in that the the idea of sort of digital infrastructure and thinking about harnessing you know the possibilities around platform technology better because it's it's certainly something i've seen in the charity sector during the pandemic i think where everybody's been suddenly forced to make a very sharp pivot to working digitally and you know it's been a challenge but i think one of the the outcomes of that has been a much greater awareness of you know the opportunities and to some extent the, the challenges of, of technology and I think 
conversations around infrastructure have shifted in that direction. Um, I just wondered, you know, when you're thinking about that, you say quite a lot of the, the technology is sort of already there in, in other places. And, and I would agree. I think in terms of getting it into civil society and, and joining up those dots, where would you see the sort of main responsibility for that lying? Do you think it's within civil society itself? Does the, the tech sector or you know, the private sector more broadly have a role to play? Or does, does government have to have some sort of convening role? I'm not sure I've got a, a concrete answer to that, Rodri. Um, I mean, my, I don't think government necessarily um, has the role to play here. I mean, coming back to the theme of partnerships, could a partnership be struck you know, to, to, to create a new piece of uh, national infrastructure, national digital infrastructure that enabled the tech sector uh, collectively to provide more of its skilled resources, uh, even more of its skilled resources to help um, improve the, the digital capacity and capability and infrastructure of the very large number um, of small and medium-sized charities across the UK. That strikes me as an eminently uh, feasible project that could be done by, you know, mobilising and bringing together uh, the third sector and uh, the tech sector in some joint venture. It would require a degree of curation, a a degree of uh, coordination across the tech sector across the charitable sector and the coming of those together. And I'm not suggesting that is entirely straightforward, but nor is it infeasible. I think that is eminently feasible. We know there's loads of good tech for good projects already taking place on a kind of case-by-case basis, firm-by-firm basis with individual charities. And that is fantastic. Could those efforts could be kind of pooled and collectivized? I think they absolutely could. And in a way, that is the mirror image in tech of what I tried to achieve with pro bono economics 12 years ago for the economics profession. So I'm not suggesting that was entirely straightforward. Yeah, having sectors speak to each other is not straightforward because they speak different languages. Uh, as I found, you know, uh, out myself when I was trying to, you know, partner charities with economists. But those barriers could be, with time and effort, they can be, they can be surmounted. And I know that is true for the link between tech and charities um, now. This would be, a, as you say, a, it'd be a, a national project, but done on a very localized and decentralized way through a platform. And maybe that requires a, a degree of nudge from government, in which case you've got all three pillars under the same tent. That'd be better still. But I think it could happen even by the third and private sectors getting together. I just wanted to, to move on to ask sort of more broadly around around technology. I think there we've we've talked about the the potential for harnessing kind of digital technology as it is now. Um, I think you've talked quite a bit about the the opportunities and challenges that might come from more emergent technology, um, you know, sort of broadly falls under the umbrella of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and I, I find it really interesting, you know, you've said a number of times in, in speeches about looking back at history at the role that civil societies played in previous periods of kind of rapid social and technological change in helping to manage the the way through that and helping to kind of um, address some of the unintended consequences. Do you feel as though civil society is currently in a position to do that as we go into this fourth industrial revolution? Or, or are you concerned that it's not kept pace with developments in tech? I think technology is part of this. But I mean, the larger part is 
really about how those new technologies, the fourth industrial revolution, will reshape lives and will reshape societies. And that's where the contribution, I think, of civil society becomes so crucial. Uh, Rodri, look at those those past, you know, probably three industrial revolutions since the uh, 18th century. Uh, each have brought about, you know, technological change. But the key point was that the technological change uh, ushered in wrenching social change as well. And the crucial role of civil society was in, in managing the consequences of that wrenching social change and that you know that could have been uh, homelessness in cities it could have been dealing with issues of mental health and loneliness it could have been dealing with issues of joblessness uh if people lost their jobs to machines now looking ahead fourth industrial revolution i think there's a reasonable chance based upon a whole bunch of evidence that you know, one we could see many more jobs or certainly tasks being automated and therefore problems of joblessness becoming somewhat greater, or certainly skills transition into the new world of work becoming greater. We could find a widening of the gap between those that are winners from the fourth industrial revolution uh, and those uh, that are losers from it. In other words, a widening of the gap between the well-off and the less uh, well-off. We could find at the same time as we become digitally more connected, ourselves becoming more socially disconnected and therefore issues of you know, insecurity and loneliness and mental health becoming more prominent. And all of those would call for a bigger role for civil society. When the one particular opportunity I've given some thought to, Rodri, is whether we need to kind of rethink, reconceptualize even what work means. Because it's only over the last 250 years that work has really been associated with, you know, getting up in the morning, going somewhere and getting a paycheck as a result. You know, prior to the first Industrial Revolution, work was done locally, probably from or around your house and didn't necessarily have a salary check attached to it. I do wonder, looking ahead to a world perhaps of a bit less paid work and a bit more unpaid work, in other words, voluntary contributions of various types, that we as a society might think of work in, in somewhat different terms. In other words, as, as, as voluntary work, as societal contribution, as being the metric by which we keep score rather than paycheck. And if that were to be the case, if more was done by machines and somewhat less by humans in terms of paid work, that would prospectively swell very significantly that volunteer army I mentioned earlier on. It would make even more important generating you know, career pathways in the voluntary sector, make it even more important that our schools built a habit of volunteering from an early stage. And I think there's real opportunities there for the sector to rethink its contribution, really from the youngest age right through to retirement. Yeah, I think it's a, a fascinating idea. And I guess, as you're saying, it goes back to, to the earlier point you made about as people enter the workplace, thinking about the uh, sort of voluntary activity and a social contribution alongside work. And as those boundaries between what we currently think of as work and, and voluntary activity and leisure and creativity maybe get more blurred, it might be easier to to craft that narrative. Um, and it just struck me for the, for the first time, actually, I think there's a really interesting 
um, possibility in looking back at history at some of the conversations people like Beveridge were having um, at the, the the birth of the welfare state, where he was sort of trying to get to grips with what the ongoing role of voluntary activity and charity and philanthropy would be on the assumption that, that the new welfare state would kind of take care of all of people's basic needs. Um, and actually, they feel like there are some, some modern echoes there. Um, I'm aware that I'm in danger of taking altogether too much of your time. So I just wanted to, to ask one uh, last question, um, if that's all right, about um, where we are at the moment in terms of the economy and kind of what that might mean for, for charities and, and for, for people giving to them. Um, you've, you've said quite a bit recently um, about your view that the economy is, is like a coiled spring and that actually once lockdown measures are relaxed, um, we'll probably see a significant bounce back as people start to be able to go out and, and spend again. Do you, do you think that we should be similarly positive about a, a sort of corresponding rise in people giving to charities as they're starting to spend? I certainly hope so, Rodri. I'm sure many of your listeners hope so too. So uh, as you say, I, I'm hopeful that the economy will will pick up a lot of pace during the course of this year as, as the, hopefully the roadmap is rolled out and restrictions are lifted and, and the virus is uh, tackled, including importantly through the vaccinations. I'm hoping that leads to a quick bounce back in the economy, indeed in jobs in the economy. There's more spending going on and there's more jobs being created because I think if that does happen, one of the natural consequences uh, will be that uh, people will show a greater willingness to give philanthropically. Uh, when the economy grows, uh, charitable donations tend to grow too. Uh, it's understandable that over the past 12 months, with jobs having been lost and incomes having been squeezed, uh, that many people have felt the pinch, not the least of which, of course, has been the charitable sector uh, itself. But, you know, fingers crossed with a, with a rapid bounce back, that will turn around pretty quickly. The extra factor, actually, which I think is relevant to donations and giving right now, is that one of the sort of unintended consequences of all these lockdowns is that people uh, haven't been able to spend, and at least in some parts of the economy, have, have picked up, a, um, have accumulated a tidy pool of savings. Tidy pool, we're probably talking you know, north of 100 billion pounds of savings, predominantly held by some of the older and richer households, but nonetheless, it's it's money nonetheless. And if a way could be found of mobilising those monies into the charitable sector philanthropically, I think that would be a terrific thing. And it's going to be a real opportunity for uh, the sector, a real opportunity for government as well, actually, for those contributions to go to a, a good home and to help out the sector at a time, you know, the sector, the, chari uh, the charitable sector, the civil society has without question been one of the heroes of this COVID crisis without any shadow uh, of a doubt, every bit as much um, uh, as healthcare and social care, which of course have also been absolute heroes of this crisis. So if a way could be found of mobilising those savings and helping the charitable sector, which to be honest, as you know, is going to be under a huge amount of pressure um, like the NHS and like social care uh, for many years uh, to come. I think that will be a very productive, socially purposeful use of those savings. And perhaps even, you know, fiscal means could be found, fiscal incentives created to put those savings to work in the charitable sector uh, through gift aid. So the, you know, the environment's been incredibly challenging for charities and others over the last 12 months, I think we're starting to see the first kind of glimmers of light on the economy. And I expect those 
to grow as the year progresses and with it giving. And it could be we could use, as I say, some of the opportunities from this crisis to really help provide some more lasting uh, and large scale support to the sector and doing the crucial work that lies ahead for it. Absolutely. I, I think that's it's really interesting. I've obviously been involved in work at CAF um, trying to come up with ideas around uh, measures that could be used to, to enhance giving in the short term to try and address some of the, the challenges facing civil society. But actually, as you say, if there's actually a, an untapped pool of, of resources that have been built up, the argument there for a targeted fiscal incentive potentially of some kind to, to unlock those might, might be quite strong. So I think that's a really interesting potential avenue for, for work. Um, listen, Andy, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chance to talk to you on the podcast. Um, I'm very grateful to you for, for finding the time. Um, before I let you go, is there anything that you're working on that you would like to, to flag up to people or any sort of final thoughts you want to leave anybody with? Well, maybe only one, Roger, very quickly. I mentioned this you know, potential as we look ahead, blurring of the distinction between what is work and what is not work, actually. It's a back to the future notion that we should absolutely recognise voluntary community societal contributions as work, as a contribution to our education, as a contribution to our training, as a contribution to our societies. And there's much, much further to go on that front in, in reconceiving of work. There's much further to go as well, actually, in reconceiving even how we think about organizations. You know, we, we, we draw these distinctions between you know, what is a charity with a charitable purpose, what is a social enterprise, what is a company. We need a blurring of the distinction there as well. We want our private companies to become more purposeful, to serve a social purpose as well. That's what the E and the S and the G are all about. So I think looking ahead, rather than drawing these somewhat arbitrary and often quite unhelpful distinctions between organizational forms. I'd love it if we could think slightly more holistically about the purpose of organization you know, rather than their legal niceties. And that would also, I think, be a productive area for research and thinking by the sector. Definitely. And I think that's some, some great sort of big picture food for thought to, to leave everybody with. Uh, so thanks very much, Andy. Thank you, Roger. Really enjoyed it. You're listening to the Charities Aid Foundation's Giving Thought Podcast. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Andy for coming on the podcast. It was uh, an absolutely fascinating conversation from my point of view, um, and it was you know, great to have a chance to, to talk to Andy and certainly hope to have an opportunity to discuss these things with him further in the future because he's got lots of uh, interesting thoughts on all these issues. Um, at this point, let's go into uh, my conversation with Neil, where we pick up on some of the things that uh, Andy was talking about there um, and get reflections from Neil and from, from me on those and the ones that sort of resonated most with us and with uh, thinking that's going on at CAF at the moment. Uh, just as a bit of brief background uh, on Neil. Uh, so Neil, as I say, is the uh, Chief Executive of the Charities Aid Foundation as of October last year. He joined from uh, Leonard Cheshire, which is a big disability charity that works in the UK and internationally. And before that, he had a, a long career um, in the private sector, particularly in the telecoms industry. Um, so without further ado, let's go into the conversation and I'll be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. I'm here with Neil Heslop. Hi, Neil. Rod, good to see you. 
<laughs> I could see you too. Uh, and Neil is the, uh, well, still relatively new uh, chief executive of Charities Aid Foundation, CAF, and uh, indeed my boss. And in a sort of uh, slight change from the way that we've done things before on the podcast, I thought it'd be a great idea to get Neil on to, to have a bit of a chat after the conversation you've just all had the chance to listen to with Andy Haldane, because I think a lot of the things Andy was saying there very much kind of echoed conversations that I know Neil has been having with me and with other people recently. Um, and I thought it would be really interesting to get Neil's take on on what Andy was saying. So for you, Neil, I mean, having listened to the conversation, what did you think was was kind of most interesting in what you heard Andy saying? Well, I think the first thing uh, to say is it, it, it was great to hear um, Andy talk directly. He, he, he's written incredibly uh, persuasively about the third sector and its potential. And, and I know through his work with pro bono economics and other things that he's contributed to the wider discourse. He has a, a strong recognition that across the economy, you know, our, our economies are whatever it is, a couple of trillion uh, pounds. And he sees the third sector being 10% of that. So, you know, a, an enormous number, a couple of hundred billion, and a huge part of the economy, which has amazing potential. And I think against that backdrop, listening to some of his thinking and underpinning really just emphasised for me the extraordinary both opportunity and obligation all of the third sector has, and, and certainly us at, at, at CAF have, in terms at this extraordinary point in our history to, to really step up our efforts, to really grasp some of that unrealised potential. And I know there were a few things um, that I thought in talking to Andy that, that he kind of particularly picked out that, that really felt very relevant to, to a lot of the conversations here at CAF. I mean, some of that was around his recognition of the importance of infrastructure in civil society and, and particularly the, the way in which that infrastructure increasingly needs to be digital. Was that something that kind of chimed with you as well? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, and, and as you know, Rod, from our various conversations in the, the last five or six months since I joined the organisation, I'm hugely interested in the in the potential of digital and and in in order to add value. You know, having spent 25 years of my career in the technology business, both in the UK and 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 the US, very much from a sort of a private corporation point of view, from a business point of view, I I really believe since I've moved into the charity sector that there's an enormous opportunity for all of us in the third sector to use and leverage technology and as soon as you say that you, as soon as you, you you engage in the whole question of digital skills and digital infrastructure you inevitably get into that whole question about how we get access to both the uh, the the resources and the skills that allow us to to leverage the opportunity and and you know in one of his essays andy's talked a lot about the three big areas of barrier to why the third sector perhaps underpunches its weight. You know, he's talked about the inherent financial fragility, the point that you're making about infrastructure deficits, and then of course the some of the challenges that we have in, in terms of a seat at the table of influence, which uh, which he touched on in his conversation with you. And I think all of those three things are areas that charity leaders across the sector and and particularly those in in the infrastructure organizations such as us need to really reflect on 
I absolutely, and I'd, I'd say in terms of that latter point you're making about having a seat at the table that, that Andy touched on, I know it's something you and I have have talked about, and and I think we're you know lots of people will be aware there's been a lot of soul searching during the pandemic within the charity sector and particularly among the infrastructure organisations about why it doesn't seem to be the case that that the voice of civil society is cutting through in the way that we would all want. I mean, for you, what's your sort of take on on what's holding that voice back? Well, I, th- I think it's the classic thing that our greatest strength is our greatest weakness, isn't it? You know, I mean, I mean part of the um, the landscape that gives us our strength is the the diversity and the breadth and the depth. And I think as soon as you say that, the opposite end of that spectrum is is fragmentation. And I, you know, having spent a lot of a lot of my career in the telecoms business, where th- th- those organisations reach a point of view on behalf of their industry or or on behalf of business more broadly, perhaps a lot more easily, my observation would be that within the third sector, we find it enormously difficult to settle into having a a unified and, and, and impactful point of view. Now, I do think COVID has has begun to change that. And in talking with colleagues at Akivo and NCVO and Chartered Institute of Fundraising and other organisations, clearly last summer's experience had a very beneficial effect on bringing forward uh, more of a dialogue in that regard. But uh, if I'm honest, I think we're really only scratching the surface on that. And, And we do, all of us need to really redouble our efforts if the third sector's going to take its rightful place around the, the table of, of policymakers from government and, and, and from business. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you met, you mentioned there that obviously um, the pandemic has been an extraordinarily difficult time for lots of organisations and lots of people have had to think in, in different ways or it's sharpened focus on, on some things. I mean, it's particularly odd for you, I'm sure, because you obviously came into CAF um, towards the end of last year, which, uh, you know, it's odd joining, joining an organisation as a new CEO at the best of times. And I think it's safe to say last year was not, not the best of times uh, for all sorts of reasons. But how have you you kind of navigated some of those those particular challenges and have you sort of combined thinking about um, your role at CAF and some of the potential you see in CAF against that backdrop? Well, I'd, I'd probably answer that in two parts, Rod. I, I, I guess my, my, my personal experience of this last 12 months has sort of been a game of two halves, really, because immediately prior to joining CAF, I, I spent the first six months of the pandemic was spent as chief executive of an international disability charity, Leonard Cheshire. And in that context, you know, I had colleagues some some four to five thousand frontline colleagues providing support to individuals with disability in, a, in, in a, across a, a fairly complex social care network. So that that was, as you can imagine, about as um, profound a set of challenges around PPE and infection control and uh, some more support for marginalised disabled groups as you could possibly have. And then, of course, my la- my last six months. As, as you quite rightly say, having joined CAF on, on the 1st of October uh, 2020, has very much both personally having moved across in lockdown and having to move into and learn about uh, our organisation and listen to our stakeholders through the course of the autumn and and and, and, and the first few months of this year. I'd lived that um, that personal reality of, of doing all of that in the new model 
in, in a very practical way. I think, and while there's been some, some difficulty of that, I think in the long run, I think that's actually going to prove to be actually quite helpful. I think because the digital operation of our organization had really exposed, as in so many organizations, really deep-seated and, and, and fragilities that, that, that many organizations have sort of had to face up to follow, following COVID. But I think what's also happened is that the organization has innovated in a way that, frankly, it didn't believe it could. And having proved a whole bunch of things to itself, the art of the possible going forward suddenly feels a lot more attainable than perhaps it did beforehand. So I, I, I think, and, and I don't think these observations are particularly unique or, 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 or specific to CAF. I mean, in talking to people across the sector and in other organisations, what, what, what we've seen in society is, is the exposing of deep-seated issues brought out to life, not least in social care, in, in, in health care, in poverty for marginalised groups, all of those things, all the things that, frankly, we knew were out there all through the austerity years over the last 10 years. There's been a huge spotlight and they've become incredibly visible to all of us. And I think that that's that's also been the case for, for us at CAF, I, I think. And, and collectively it's been a, a call to action to say okay well this this is our new reality the world has changed now what are we going to do and for somebody coming new into an organization with the the task of agreeing a long-term sustainable strategy for charities aid foundation that's actually a, a pretty helpful backdrop with which to engage with our board to engage with our uh, with our senior leaders and all, and all of our staff in saying okay what what is it about our core purpose that we need to really connect with and how are we in the years ahead going to come behind an aligned approach that that allows us to improve ourselves and to make a bigger contribution to the sector Absolutely. And I, I, I suppose, as you say, thinking, if sharpening the focus and people's minds on thinking about the, the opportunities and challenges of the future is probably useful, as you say, as a backdrop when you're thinking through CAF's own strategy. But I guess coming to some of what Andy Haldane was saying and talking about the impact of the fourth industrial revolution and technological change, it sort of struck me that you know, he was making a very clear point that we do need to be thinking about the, the future at the moment, but certainly not in terms of the next three or five years. It needs to be the next 10 or 20 years because it, it feels as though it's going to be a period of enormous change and not just technology. I think all sorts of other factors like climate and, and others. How has, has that kind of time horizon been influencing your thinking as, as you uh, settle into the role at CAF? Well, well um, we've literally just last week signed off with the board and new four-year strategy to cover us from 2021 through to 25, and maybe we could come back to that. But in, in order to frame that up, we've been doing an, an awful lot of work, as you yourself will know, because you, you've been a, a key part of, of some of that thinking. But really to, um, to go back to first principles. So we've gone right back to uh, our core trustee and said, what is it that we're, we're here for? What's, what's our underlying purpose? And we, we've done a lot of work to, to be really clear about why this organization 
exists. And interestingly, a former colleague of, of Andy's, uh, Mark Carney, the for, former governor of the Bank of England, um, has been quite influential in contextualizing some some of those, some of that thinking and those considerations. And I, I was very struck that Mark gave the wreath lectures just, be, just before Christmas, which was quite timely and influential in, in helping us think about this period between 2010 and 2030, which we're, we're smack in the middle of. And, and I guess Carney's kind of core thesis about that was that in future generations, this period between 2010 and 2030 will be seen as a period in which the world changed. And he put forward a, a point of view that that change was characterised by a transition from the market economy to the market society. And that the the underpinning philosophy of some of those changes introduced a, a clash of financial value and human values. And he brought forward that that uh, indicated to him a sense that the next few years is going to be a period where values become valuable. And he sees all of that period through the lens of three related crises. So, he, you know, he talked very powerfully about the credit crisis, the COVID crisis and the climate crisis, characterising 2010 through to the beginning of the pandemic as, as the credit crisis. This period that we're in now being about COVID and then, and then clearly the, the, the climate crisis in the run up to 2030 being a hugely dominant agenda for us. And of course, for an organisation such as ours, whose charitable activities are essentially funded through uh, interest rates. So for us uh, here in, in the CAF group that historically has a, a for-profit bank providing surf services to 15,000 UK-based charities and our charitable activity being funded by interest rates, that credit crisis over the last 10 years has been hugely important to us because it is interest rates from which we earn the money to pay for our charitable activity in supporting donors to invest in the wider sector. So Carney's framing of credit crisis and his analysis of what COVID has meant in terms of a fundamental shock and this resurgence in human values is profoundly relevant to us as we think about how do we place our activity on a sustainable footing going forward and redouble our efforts to support donors either in the form of philanthropists or corporations encouraging them to commit more money into the sector and 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 support our charity partners how do how do we do that in a sustainable way and enable the people who matter which is the you know the end beneficiaries of the charities that we exist to serve uh, to receive the vital support and resources that they need ultimately to to deliver the lasting social change that all of us are aspiring to so i think i think you know carney's framing of that 2010 to 2030 feeds very nicely into some of the things we heard Andy talking about, about the potential of the sect and, and how financial fragility and infrastructure deficit and seat at the table needed to be addressed. And that's been a key part of some of our thinking about how do we how do we respond to all of that externally and, and take that into how do we plan 
for our own future and our own digital transformation and, and our role in working at a sector level to, to grow sustainable impact. Absolutely. And and it was you know it was great to have a chance to to talk to Andy. Um but sort of even more so than than usual, I think, at this point in time, given how much it reflects conversations going on at CAF, which I know I've been really interested to be a part of. And hopefully people listening will be really interested to to get a sense of some of the thinking that's that's going on here at the moment. Just in terms of people listening whose ears might have, have pricked up and are thinking, oh I wonder how I find out more about that or you know about opportunities to to work with or collaborate with CAF in the future. Future. Have you got any sort of final thoughts you want to leave people with on, on what they can do? Yeah, well, I, I mean, they um, our 21 to 25 strategy, you know, we've given it we've given it the title of together building opportunity. And that's because, you know, that that together word is all about a recognition that we need to do a lot of work on our own internal cohesion. But we also need to reach out to people with it with a deep commitment to external collaboration. We've got a lot of improvement to deliver internally. And, and we'll be doing that against the backdrop of the, the whole Build Back Better um, sentiment from COVID. And I, I do think it's about opportunity for all of us. And, and I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I think there's a huge opportunity and obligation on all of us to to collaborate and engage in a way that perhaps we as an organisation and, and perhaps we as a sector have very often struggled to do in the past. And I guess rather than a specific, you can engage in X or Y, what I would just say is we as a group of people and an organisation are reflecting very deeply about our need to change and our need to take our engagement and collaboration with other parties to a whole new level. We've started doing that with, with colleagues in NCVO and Akivo and, and, and uh, New Philanthropy Capital and a whole, a whole raft of places. And that as a commitment is something that we are, we are going to be looking to really be taking forward in the years ahead. Absolutely, I certainly certainly echo that. Um, Neil, uh, great to, to have the chance to talk to you. And as you say, you know, once uh, some of the the detail of of CAF strategy kind of becomes more clear going forward, it would be you know great to to get you back on the podcast and maybe we could have a longer chat at some point. I I look forward to that. Keen to do that in the coming weeks and months. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Andy for for the conversation and also to Neil for coming on the podcast and giving some of his thoughts. Uh, If you're interested in the things that we were discussing, I'll put some links in the show notes to various relevant bits and pieces. If you're interested in thoughts more broadly on philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Follow CAF on Twitter at CAF. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Or if you like stuff that's more about the history and theory of philanthropy at Philiteracy. If you've got ideas for other things we could talk about on the podcast or people that I could get on, drop us a line at givingthought uh, at cafonline.org. Uh, although I should say we've got quite a backlog of uh, people lined up for interview at the moment, so it might have to be a bit further in the future, uh, which is a nice problem to have. Um, but other than that, yeah, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about the podcast, uh, give us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, um, talk about the show on social media, you know, drop me a line, interact with me, that's all great stuff, uh, and I will see you next time. Bye! Bye!